Hello, everyone. This is Scott McNamara with What's New in Adapted Physical Education. I'm bringing you a very exciting episode with a very exciting guest. Uh, his name is Dr. Brett Smith from Durham University from uh, England, UK, and very excited to have him here. I was just fawning over his work and, and such right before this. Um, I am a big fan of Dr. Brett Smith as an APA scholar and advocate as well as I, in my mind, and I think some of my, my colleagues' mind, a, uh, a champion in the qualitative research realm, kind of in general, outside, I'd say, of APA, which is really exciting to have such an awesome uh, scholar in our field, in our little niche area. So welcome, Brett. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, for people that don't know, this podcast has been going for seven years. During the pandemic, loads of people's podcasts sprung up, etc. But, you know, this this started the trend in our field. So, you know, congratulations, Scott. You know, big well, congratulations. Thank you very much. Yes, I am the um, the Simpsons or something of the uh, <laughs> a podcast. We don't stop. <laughs> so... Uh, with that, um, yeah, I, you know, I would love to know, uh, we're going to kind of talk a little bit. You have, in my mind, I've had a few other guests on here that I kind of consider to be these really, really well-rounded scholars that have done quite a few things. The last one that comes to mind is Kathleen Martin Guinness was on here last year. Um, and, and so we're going to kind of bounce around on this episode talking about your work, your perceptions, and maybe a little bit about your qualitative view uh, on research as well, because I think it's so pertinent to our field. Um, so with that, though, can you talk at the beginning a little bit about what, who you are and your background in the field of adaptive physical activity? How did you come into this lovely but niche area? <laughs> well, again, thanks for a very generous uh, introduction. Let me start how I, how I got into this space. Well, it's a long time ago, over 20 years, and perhaps not unlike many people listening to this. It was originally for two key reasons. Uh, one, biographical, uh, family members who were disabled, friends dis uh, who were disabled, a love for sport, love for passion for physical activity. So all of that rolled into one about what's going on in this space. But of course, uh, that insight needed some academic injection, so to speak. And when I did my master's at University of Exeter many, many years ago, I had different professors, but one of them was a professor called Andrew Sparks, and he was interested in rugby and spinal cord injury. We chatted, we had different ideas, we thought things very similarly, and we thought, hey, there's a project here. Why don't we consider looking at people who have become uh, disabled uh, through playing rugby? And that really led to my passion to disability, physical activity and sport. And those two crystallized. And of course, on the journey, uh, I've still got family members. My brother's just had some more children. Uh, we've got disability in our family. So it's really, you know, the personal is political. The political is personal, plus an, uh, an intellectual and academic passion in terms of moving into this space. And I think relationships are absolutely crucial for me to continue with this, not just family relationships and relationships with organizations that have been really 
honored to work with like Disability Rights UK who have kept the passion moving. But I've had core people throughout my career that have changed uh, my directions of research. I've had core people in my career that have uplifted me. Uh, and I've had core people in my career that have kept me going. So uh, Andrew Sparks was one of them. You've mentioned Kathleen Martin-Guinness. She was definitely uh, one of those. And I've had other people such as Professor Charlie Foster, who helped me get into the chief medical officer's space within the UK, something we might pick up on later. He was fundamental. But really recently, and over the last seven years, it's been uh, a colleague, Leanne Whiteman at Disability Rights UK, who has works in the field of physical activity, sport and disability adapted, who has really bought into the idea is we need academics to inform our policy and practice. And she has just been an amazing colleague, amazing advocate, and has kept me going in those times when sometimes you think, I'm alone. Who else is interested in this? And she regularly pops up on my radar and has kept me going on that. So for me, it's it's been the relationships. It's been the relationships, how I got in here and how I've sustained a passion for this. And thank you to those people. I I want to interject something that's, as I told told you before this, I'm all over the place. It's planned that way. Um, I, you said something um, that honestly has come up a lot on this podcast, and it's because it comes up a lot in my life about the importance of using academics and research in policymaking. And, and I th- that's great that you have that connection. Can you just speak a little bit, elaborate on why you think that's fundamental to important pr- uh, policy and practices moving forward? Yeah, uh, several reasons, but I always start uh, before I jump into the reasons with how I got in there. You know, we talk a lot about strategy. We talk a lot about planning. It was serendipity. Uh, I sent an email to Disability Rights UK. This person who just joined, Leanne, who's interested in physical activity, she said, let's meet. We connected. Suddenly she got funding. Things developed. And here I am on the journey with her. There was no planning, no strategy, just an email that put me into this space where my voice is able to have an influence in terms of policy and practice and the second person's Professor Charlie Foster but why several reasons one is independence because when these organizations go into for example our UK government and saying you know these things are absolutely vital in terms of changing disabled people's lives in relation to physical activity and sport Having that independence, uh, i.e. me, uh, who isn't aligned officially in a job space with Disability Rights UK and other organisations gives that credibility. That's that's the first thing. On top of that, of course, the one, the evidence base. Now, we can talk what evidence might mean, of course, and complicate that. But nonetheless, these organisations are really now uh, fundamental to them is having an evidence uh, base on that. And I think thirdly... Um, in terms of how this works is curiosity, curiosity and integrity. Uh, Having that curiosity to ask questions and for 
us to ask questions together and secondly for them to be to have the power and what I mean by that in terms of their their job is to move into government and challenge government and inform government for them to be in that space daily and weekly it means that I'm able to have those curiosity questions which then they're able to have those questions and talks in government which then feeds back and we end up in this I wouldn't say messy loop but it's certainly an iterative uh, cycle of going backwards and forwards so you know it's it's a combination of things starting with look it's you know this independence it's about evidence-based work and it's about having that curiosity passion and space already in those uh policy and practice circles where people can make a difference and where their voices are legitimate and where their voices are deemed important to to making a difference rather than an academic banging his or her head or however we might identify ourselves against a brick wall and sending emails and not really getting anywhere. That's been absolutely fundamental. They've been our bridge, our fundamental bridge into policy, into practice and into government. I love that. I love the curiosity aspect as well, because yes, um, you know, I think often as scholars, at least we, I, ideally we are pushing ourselves to think of novel things and new things and, and push ourselves in those way and sometimes these um these uh societal kind of structures can be very stale or very uh you know and that's a wonderful kind of thing to kind of note that we can try to move those things by thinking outside of the box and try new things and inform it in addition um i know your work where you uh, are really passionate about understanding the a disabled person's voice uh, and so through your voice um, working with them in some means as you are a medium then to access their voice to the policy, which is nice as well. So um, leading with that somewhat. So again, your area, you, your areas when I've looked you up uh, quite a bit, <laughs> your area, you know, spans quite a bit your work. And that's great. And honestly, very idealistic to me in this, in our field, especially, that's a little underdeveloped. Um, you know, so it's like there's so much to do. And so it's so great to see that you're doing not only a big span, but also rigorous stuff in that. Um, so with that said, though, I wanted to talk briefly about your work in language. I've read some of your things that have been about language and the use of language and how we use it and describe and address those with disabilities. Um, and that always, even when it's not paramount to your work, it seems to be something that is thought, thoughtful and, and discussed. Um, so can you talk a little bit, let's, let's begin with how you, um, let's describe uh, why, A, that it's important that you, um, that we think about the language that we use when we describe disability. Let's start there and then we'll get a little deeper in there. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, firstly, thanks for raising this because it's, uh, it's an important issue, at least within the UK. Uh, and yet it's not an issue that is really discussed in these spaces. And I think personally, it, it needs to be just discussed more. And the reason why it needs to be discussed more so that we can make informed choices about how we're describing the people that we work alongside. But I think there's several reasons, again, uh, why this is so important. I think firstly, and going back to your issue of voice, it's how do people themselves want to be described? Uh, and I can talk about that in relation to the politics of language in terms of how language creates sense of realities. It doesn't just simply reflect upon it and it's 
an important actor in our society, these forms of language. I think in addition to that, academics have been very quick often uh, to adopt a certain language without reflecting upon how that language goes back to the people that we're trying to work alongside. And what I mean by that is when we're calling them, for example, a disabled person or a person with a, with a disability, but they may not actually like that term, then we're also creating a form of symbolic violence. Uh, and we're not honoring how they want to be described uh, themselves in relation to that. So I think it's a matter of uh, voice, it's a matter of integrity, uh, it's a matter of attempting to avoid a sense of symbolic violence, it's a matter of recognizing that language isn't neutral, it's not just something we should just throw away, it's actually constitutive, it's creative, it, it constructs the realities of our lives, but also disabled people's lives, how we position them, where they are positioned, uh, and what works for them and doesn't work for them in relation to sport, physical activity, policy and, and practice. And once we start getting to grips with all of that, it, it is complicated. Uh, but I think I come back to my original point, then it's about making informed choices about how we're going to talk about and with the people that we work alongside, rather than just saying disabled people or people with an impairment or a person with a disability. We need to understand why, why we are using those terms. And when I ask those questions to colleagues around the globe, we've got some brilliant colleagues that are able to offer some good answers. I may disagree with them, but they're still informed answers. But far too often I see people say, I don't understand why are you asking that question? It, it is this, as though it's some objective reality being passed down to us uh, by governments, by policymakers, by disabled people, when in fact it's got a long, long complicated history tied into politics, tied into medical models, tied into social models, tied into geography as well, of course. Uh, and so we've got to we've got to get to grips with it. We've got to appreciate it for those reasons. And finally, it's it's respectful. It's respectful. If I, I have, you know, and I had, um, I don't know if you know Nancy Spencer, she was on here a little, a few years ago now to talk a little bit about the language you use and, and different ways that we use it and why. Uh, and I, I still want to hit on some of those things with you too, because it's an issue that needs to, we need to go back to. Um, but one thing like I've always like in my head had a hard time with is let's say a community that probably would be a good example would be like the autistic community. Um, what if that community and even the sample and or participants that I'm working with, people I'm working with, have different views of what autism means to them? And some of them have an identity with it, and some of them want a quote unquote cure for it. Or, and as a, should I not be trying to respect both views? And how do we do that? You know, and then that's where, you know, obviously that's where there's some maybe complexities, but that's an area that I really, I struggle in often um, of conceptualizing some of those things. Yeah, and you're not alone. You're not alone. I struggle with it uh, frequently. And I'll start with the idea of struggling is important. If you didn't struggle, then you'd take these issues for granted and you wouldn't appreciate that they are significant issues. So the struggle in itself is a form of respect, I think, as well. So I think that's that's a really important starting point. If you're not struggling, then I would be concerned. I would be concerned would be my first uh, point. But how do we do that? How do we navigate it when you've got different participants might want to be called, for example, person with a disability or a disabled person? 
How do you navigate that terrain? Well, I've navigated it in the following ways, and it's on different layers and levels. When I'm working in the academic space, i.e. trying to publish work, and I'll say trying to, uh, of course, because we all fail. Uh, many people say, oh, it's easy, Brett. You know, you've published a lot. No, we all fail. We all get rejects, and we've got to try again and improve it. Um, but it's when we've got different uh, different identities being played out or different positions in terms of where the person and disability is, it is beholden upon us to do several things. One of those is to acknowledge those in our papers that there is a diversity. A second strategy that I've adopted on some occasions is to mix the terminology, to have that respectfulness. Now, of course, some reviewers come back saying, you, you, on the one hand, you say disabled person, on the other hand, say person with a disability, which one do you mean? And that's beholden upon us to articulate the reasons for this. It's going back down to respect, understanding the geography, uh, different spaces, people want different labels and so on. So it's about articulating that as best as possible within the within the word space. I think the biggest issue I've got is when an editor or a reviewer, and it has come back to me multiple times, and I'll highlight the journal Disability and Rehabilitation here, but for a positive reason. I was often uh, hammered by reviewers uh, saying, stop saying disabled person, stop saying disabled person. It's person with a disability, person with a disability. Well, actually, most of the participants that I've worked with, uh, it's disabled person. Uh, and I refused to change. I wrote to the editor, the editor, good on this person, said, we need to change our policy. We need to educate our reviewers on this. And I think that's also part of that process, that academic process, rather than the reviewers who weren't making informed choices and uh, not to you, not to you for imposing and uh, having a form of symbolic violence against me and the participants that I was working with. So I think that's on the one hand, and that's that's to me is an easier struggle because we can control in some respects that academic space. We can write, we're using these words interchangeably because participants want to use them interchangeably. The more challenging space I've found is when you're working in national policy. That is an incredibly challenging space. And so I've been very privileged. And again, thanks to a colleague, Professor Charlie Foster, who opened up this space uh, for me, is you can't knock on the chief medical officer's doors of our country. You know, these are incredibly important, uh, influential people. But nonetheless, I was uh, privileged to be able to go into that space. And we've been uh, doing the chief medical officer's physical activity guidelines for disabled adults in 2019, and then uh, children and young adults in 2022. That very issue came up time and time again, What's going to be the title? Is it going to be disabled uh, people, disabled young people? Is it going to be people with dis disabilities? That is equally challenging when you bring in co-production, when you're saying we value diversity, when we value different voices. How do you navigate that tension between honouring uh, co-production and diversity of voices when ultimately from a public health, not clinical, that needs to be stressed, there's a difference between clinical guidelines and public health guidelines. When public health guidelines only want one, and secondly, the chief medical officers won't navigate two or three because they believe it's gonna be a confusing message. How, how do you negotiate that? Do you go down the consensus route or do you take uh, an alternative position? Now, this is, this is a position where I come back to some maybe sociology. It's kind of like, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on here? 
And this to me is a political issue. It becomes a political issue where I want to infuse public health with politics. And yes, if I want to say a person with a disability, there's less political issues around that within the UK, but a disabled person is politically uh, in a different space and it's a different challenge and perhaps uh, a more important challenge for many people. So we talked with parents, we talked with children, we asked the question, why is it you want to be, for example, uh, a child with uh, autism or why is it that you want to be known as a, a deaf person or a person with a disability when the vast majority of people in the people that we worked with, over two hundred wanted disabled person. What was what was going on in this in in this other space? They came up with some very very good reasons that are embedded in the literature and, and that we that we hear. But ultimately, ultimately, all of them were reproducing in some ways a medical model, a medicalized model uh, of disability. Now, of course, we don't want to throw the baby out of the bathwater and privilege one model or another. But when it comes to it, you've got to make a decision in this struggle, whose side are you, whose side are you on? And that's where we had these challenges and dialogues about well, what's going to be most, what's going to be most important in terms of changing the political dial. What's going to be most important? And it was disabled person. And that comes back down to an, what is a guiding question that I always utilize for better or worse. And it's an ethno-methodology question. What's at stake? What's at stake if I'd used or we had used person with a disability or a person with autism or an autistic child or uh, a person with an amputee? Um, what's at stake there? A lot, but what's at stake when we lose disabled person was greater. And so we made that decision for better or worse. We made that decision based upon that navigation of working alongside, being open, being honest, and asking what's at, what's at stake uh, in, in relation to this. I think a wonderful review of uh, the importance of it. And it sounds to me like you, you've chosen that disabled person uh, viewpoint. And, and however, that there was quite a struggle in doing that, uh, which is, again, a good thing. You, you touched on uh, another thing. And go, I want to go into another question. Um, and co like co-production, right? that's a, a, a somewhat a, a new a newer uh, idea to me, even in the last year or two, uh, where I've seen some of your work. So maybe you can talk a little bit about it. But then also, we've talked a little bit about the importance of gaining uh, disabled people's voices in creating best practices and policy. So can you talk a little bit about what is co-production of knowledge and, and stuff? And then how does that potentially lead us to creating best practices in the field of APA? Yeah, if I forget the idea of best practices, do remind me, Scott, because uh, I, I can't let you go off on different tangents and so on. I, I love teaching for that because you've got totally control of the lecture theatre. Uh, but anyway, I've just gone on the tangent, uh, so apologies, uh, listeners, on that. But well, going I, back to I think this, this still kind of relates to all of it because we're trying to get into the people's voice, you know, like, so, so how do you create that? And that I know that co-production area has been a big aspect too of what you've been doing recently in doing that. And so how do we create these best practices using people's voices? 
Yeah, I mean, one one way is, of course, like you just said, is through co-production. There's lots of different ways, and I think that's I think one of my first key messages is co-production has become a, a popular word or a lucrative buzzword, as many people have called it. It's a lucrative buzzword to get grants wherever country you're in. Uh, it's a lucrative buzzword to partner with uh, disabled people or people with disabilities in your uh, different spaces. And so on. So that first uh, needs to be said. I think secondly, co-production, depending where you are in the world, has a long history. And this is this is really important for people to uh, appreciate uh, for good reasons. It's about being respectful of academia and it's about, about being respectful of the history, the history of civil rights, the history of politics and the history of what's gone on in different countries. So when you look at co-production and what it might mean in terms of the academic literature, there's been some great work by Swedish colleagues uh, who have identified over 500 different definitions of co-production in the literature. When we delved in the literature, it was a complete mess as well. So you've got lots of different definitions of co-production running through there. That confuses people confused me definitely uh, so one thing I attempt to do when I'm confused is create typologies uh, and I'm a big fan of typologies uh, why it just helps me sort through the mess and to create some generalized overview of, of x y or z and in this case uh, co-production so we've got all of these different definitions together and I should have a shout out to my colleagues who were part of this uh, Dr Ollie Williams Dr Javier Monforte and the co-production group uh, moving social moving social work on here we worked together and we created this typology of of co-production to better navigate the different types, not to elevate one type above the other. And secondly, not to say co-production should be the gold standard in terms of working and bringing people's voices to the foreground. It's just one participatory approach out of many and one way of doing it amongst you know, many different ways. What we identified in the literature was, uh, and perhaps quite common now in sport exercise and APA spaces in wherever you look is what's called integrated knowledge translation. And that's become a known as a form of, of co-production. Uh, but what's interesting when you look at that, the history which emerged during the 1980s in a healthcare setting, it was very much about bringing uh, knowledge users or stakeholders. Now there is key differences between the two, but nonetheless, uh, bringing those into the space so that their voices could guide how research could be better translated into practice. So it's used, it's not wasted, it's useful and usable. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. But when you look back at that literature, several things are really interesting. One is it's dominated by Canadian references and North American references. So they're not necessarily going outside of that space. And that's important for a point I'll come back to. But secondly, the word may or might was embedded in bringing people with lived experience. In this case, disabled people or maybe refugees or whoever it is you're working with, bringing people in there is a may. This is very much about healthcare professionals are the must. They're at the center of this and we might bring in. Now that's great, that's fantastic. Brilliant work has been done over the years on that. But recently the uh, IKT uh, people have also said we need to bring people with lived experiences more firmly into it, make it more essential, make it more of a must. Fantastic. But what they're not doing then is IKT. Uh, why? because they're doing something else which has been for around much longer than integrated knowledge translation. And part of that history was instigated by disabled people themselves. 
Uh, and we all know the phrases beginning with you know, nothing. I won't finish it off because people on this podcast will uh, have that uh, to their uh, voice. And if you're a student, finish it off, hand in class. Uh, but for a long time, we've had that history, and particularly in Europe, you know, that that terminology came from uh, Eastern Europe. It's very much embedded in, in Britain. So we've had this history of saying uh, people's voices, people's lived experience must be included for a long time, must be included. There wasn't a clear definition uh, of that and there wasn't a label attached to it. So we made best efforts uh, to provide a label to that and what we called uh, equitable, experientially informed co-production. We just put a label to what had been going on for many years. Now, some people might quibble and say, well, it's the same as IKT, Integrated Knowledge Translation, but it's not. It's a different history, it's a different context, and it's respecting that history. It's respecting those people with lived experience who have fought for many years, before all of us, many years to get their voices at the centre of policy and practice. And by saying, uh, for example, if you adopt an IKT and you say it's essential that we have disabled people in there, that's not IKT, that's equitable, experientially informed. And that shift's important for respect, not for respect for our academic space. Yeah, that is important as academics, but it's respect for the history of people. And it's not just a word. It's not just quibbling over semantics. It's fundamental to respecting that history. And it's respecting as well that there's lots of work that has been gone on across the globe. And I know for a fact I'll be missing work that has gone on in other countries where they've published work not in English. And there could be different definitions going on there. And I think that's equally important. We need to acknowledge uh, that. But that equitable, experientially informed co-production for us is incredibly valuable because it doesn't say uh, people with lived experience, their voices might be included or may be included, has historically been the case in integrated knowledge translation. It's saying you must, it's essential for these for this group of people to be included. It's vital. Uh, to to jump in on that, um, I, and I've seen you write about this when you talk about qualitative research and member checking and such like that. How do we uh, avoid tokenism and simply having a person with a disability there if we're trying to get that equitable and respectful um, um, co-production occurring? How do we not just have that person? I think, especially as academics, and you have a disabled person there. Uh, or any person that's a lay person, they're, they're intimidated often and they're just going to agree with you. So how do we do that in a meaningful way where they are, we're ensuring there's some meaningful engagement on their part? And I still want to get into how this leads to best practices, but. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get to that best practice if you can uh, meander back at, at, at some point, otherwise I'll be uh, giving this talk in the pub very, very soon. Uh, but I think the words that you used were, you know, tokenistic and people just nodding their heads and having a, a form of echo chain, but because we're academics with uh, ostensible power on this. It's different, different ways of doing this uh, at the very beginning to the very end. And these are not ways that, uh, and these what we might call soft skills in the UK. But by soft skills, I think it does a dis, disinjustice and it's disingenuous to the significance of these skills. It's about recognising that people's voices and people with lived experience have equal, if not better than knowledge than us at times. Um, it's been 
very, you know, these words might sound abstract, they might sound uh, easy, but they're not in practice. It's about being respectful in listening. It's about ensuring that they take, uh, they have just other, uh, you know, disabled people in this case, that they, we are at the foreground at the very, very beginning, that they are creating the agenda, that they are having direction. And there's one person from the co-production group that we work with on a project called Moving Social Work. We did a joint session to a university a few days ago. As uh, Andrea said, and I can name her, as Andrea said, you know, one of the key things that we had uh, believed avoided tokenism was regularly we saw our voices shaping and influencing this work. We saw you disagreeing with us, but ultimately our voices overrided your voices on many occasions uh, in this. And thirdly, the idea of us all nodding together, we explicitly drove that idea at the very beginning of the project. And we, we asked, we've got lots of different voices in here. We're not striving for this consensus of 18, 90%, and therefore some voices are left behind and not included. And those voices could actually be the most significant voices in terms of directing change. We asked the question was, how could we enable conflict in a nice way or disagreements or being a friendly enemy? Uh, how could we enable this? And that was a key principle for us. And I'm very proud of that principle. And my colleague, Dr. Javier Monforte from the, from the academic side, she deserved huge credit for introducing that and bringing it into our space. And that comes from philosophy of agonistic uh, pluralism. Uh, but from uh, the co-production side and from uh, people's experiences, it's about saying all our voices matter. How are we going to include those so we don't so we don't end up in this consensus tokenistic uh, orientated practice? But it's other words like being humble. It's about listening. It's about giving giving back. Uh, so you know, I write references for some people. I give talks in their different spaces. It's about all the unexpected outcomes along the way. So some of our participants who had not, who'd left school at sixteen, had one had gone back to college, who had been given the confidence through the co-production process, not through me, through it, gone back to college. Another person has been stimulated to say, "Hey, I'm quite bright. I can do a PhD as well." Uh, moving into those spaces. So those for me are the litmus tests of having that sense of integrity, having that sense of honesty, slowing down the research, not promising the world, uh, supporting people financially, supporting people through my own time and my colleagues' time, being honest, being generous, being respectful, easy words to throw out. And this comes back down to, for me, a key issue. And it's a way of being. And I, I've met many people who have good intentions to do co-production or bring in and work alongside people's voices, but they're not ready for different reasons. They're not ready in terms of how they describe the participants, how they describe wanting to work with them. They're still locked into a different model of operating and that's fine, but they're not ready yet to move into that space. So I also think it's something about a way of being, a way of being who we are as not just academics, but as human beings. And why have we gone into this space as well? And I like the word interpolation from uh, social sciences. And I sometimes think, you know, we're, I'm a type of person that's been hailed, called into this space, and it fits my ideology, it fits my values, it fits my politics. I want to make a difference. 
but I want to make a difference in ways that are meaningful for the people that I work with in ways that they direct. And that's my, that's my moral ethical compass. I, I really like how you said, uh, you know, the people that might not be able to do this or, or think they're doing it. Um, and I like that idea of not ready because even if I think my, of myself, I graduated, I got my PhD just, I think five and a half years ago or something now. And uh, you know, it's like, I, the things that I think I'm doing right now and probably the things I'm doing in the future, I, just, I probably wasn't ready to do that. That's why when you look at your old work and you shake your head a little bit, it's uh, you know, you're not there. Um, you know, you have to learn all these things. You have to struggle. You have to do those things to get to where you're at. And I think, Scott, I think that's that's important to be honest. You know, I certainly wasn't doing my you know original PhD work. It's when I read that back as well. I'm I'm actually quite surprised how theoretically smart uh, it is, <laughs> and I don't look at that myself on that page anymore. Uh, but uh, on the other side, I'm like, God, you could have done that so differently if you'd had a a different attitude, a different way of being to research. But that comes over time. It, it comes back down to you know. G- disabled people colleagues saying to me Brett you you're not listening to me you're not hearing me okay you've got that obstacle in in your place you know you're interested in the academic outputs we don't give a damn we don't care about that what we're interested in is making our lives a bit different so we can leave a legacy how are you going to work with us to enable that and it's those different questions that they've asked and worked with uh with me and it is that you know that reciprocity uh as well and i've been very very fortunate to have people on this journey that have been able to enlighten that fuel it and also keep me on track when i go wrong because we always we always go wrong on this track and there's many times where i've where i've gone wrong and people have brought me back uh on track and the principles that we outline in relation to co-production have been really valuable for us in terms of our compass to keep us on the co-production track and as part of that to ensure that we're doing co-production not in tokenistic ways but in ways that are meaningful useful and in ways that are respectful uh, for the people that we've been working with for many years so with that going back to kind of the original um concept is how does this all lead then to best practices that are usable maybe you have some examples of that um that these become tangible things that can impact positively impact the lives of disabled people yeah i mean it's a good question let me i'll i'll come back to a good a good example which um has evolved over the last uh, year, but I think there's good reasons why co-production is vital. And it's only one way, I should stress this to listeners, it shouldn't be looked at as some utopian way of moving work into practice and making a difference. There are many other good ways of doing this and equitable, experientially informed co-production is one way, integrated knowledge translation is another way, being respectful of the differences and the history and the context, but there's other ways as well. We've got to, we've got to stress that uh, in there. but. For me, uh, co-production, how we've practiced it and how many people have practiced it for many, many years under different labels or under the co-production is I think firstly, the priorities uh, of what matters to people to make change is driven by the local communities. And in this case, communities of, of disabled people. What matters to me on this occasion? That to me, I think is a really crucial, rather than the academic thinking, I think I know, or I do know 
when in fact it might not actually connect or gel with the realities, the, the, the fundamental everyday reality of what's going on in the local communities that we're going in. I think that's that's the first way. So it puts the priorities out there, but as part of that, not just you know responding to what they believe or what you know what disabled people is necessarily, it also brings different knowledges together. And by that, I don't just mean different academic knowledges from good quantitative research to good qualitative research. I mean, you know, lived experience, experiential knowledge and other types of knowledges that people bring to the table, whether that's political knowledge, whether that's racial knowledge, uh, whether that's sexuality knowledge, whatever it may be, intersectionality weaving in there, it brings different knowledges to the table and you learn from that. You learn from that and you're able to work uh, with that. I think as well, you know, co-production's a really good way in terms of moving into, into practice because it addresses power. It really addresses power and, you know, policy has, and people in these different spaces have a huge amount of power over it. But when people are saying this is driven by disabled people, you need to listen. And if you don't listen, your policies are going to fall down. Then that starts shaking up the, the power relations and those people on the other side of the fence, so to speak, those really good people will listen. The example I can give, and I'll come back to another example on this and moving in, when we did the Chief Medical Officer's Guidelines for Disabled Children and Young People, if you look at them, the infographic, we have four elements. We have three layers to it. And the first layer, uh, once the title disabled uh, young children and young people, is it's, uh, it's about inclusivity, equality, find, find what's fun, do something that makes you feel pleasurable. Now, when we put that, that came up from the co-production group, what you wanted to communicate. When we went to the chief medical officers, they said, we don't want that. Because what drives people's health behavior, what drives people's change is health. They need to know that physical activity is good for their health and then they'll change. We're like, no, have you not read the academic literature? Yes, we've read the academic literature and the meta-analyses say health is so important. That's great. But you listen to these kids and they're telling us that unless they find something that's fun, unless they find something that's pleasurable, unless they find something that's inclusive, you can forget the health benefits. They won't gain anything from that because they won't even enter the space of physical activity or sport until those simple ingredients, or not simple, but you know, important ingredients have been met. So we had that debate with our chief medical officers and you know, they eventually, and this is where some of the tensions come, eventually I said, you've got two options here, chief medical officers. You can say, this is co-produced. And if it is, this is at the top. Or we say it's not co-produced and we go back to what you want. And we just say, this is driven by four white males, non-disabled. Your call, your call, your call. I don't have the power to do that. And and as a result as well, I think because people do know what's what's relevant to them, uh, what's acceptable to be done in practice, then this potentially enables co-production work to be more impactful. I said potentially, we still need uh, better evidence uh, on there. And I think finally, it challenges our assumptions, it challenges our assumptions about getting things into practice, about what is meaningful and useful. And let me give you one example on this. We've got this project moving social work, we're moving to stage two, we've just thankfully got some funding to move forward for another three years, but crucial to the training social workers about physical activity and having conversations about physical activity with disabled people. We assumed how the program might need to be structured. Well, 
maybe 20% of it we got right uh, if you were going to bet at the very beginning. When the co-production group came aboard, when we worked alongside uh, disabled people and social workers, the breadth and depth of the country through different approaches, uh, non-methods like uh, knowledge cafes or well cafes, when we worked alongside them, one of the key things that they told us, you've got to address the why question, Brett. You've got to address the why. Why are social workers so important? I was like, well, disabled people have told us so. Well, that's not good enough. We have these assumptions that physical activity is detrimental to disabled people. We don't think it's our job to work with disabled people because we our job is not to turn disabled people into the next Paralympian. Uh, physical activity is harmful for people. I was like, oh my goodness, is this what you think? Yeah, this is what we think. So the first part of the training course is busting those myths. Once those myths are bust, and the 99% of people in the audience, the myths are busted uh, through that. If we hadn't done co-production, the whole training program would have fallen down. If we hadn't had known that those myths, those perceptions were there, that had come from uh, disabled people and social workers, if we hadn't had known that and gone with that, it would have been a flop. It would have been a flop, absolute flop. That's, those are great examples. And then thank you. I feel like I'm in this like riveting, like college lecture class. Like I, I get, I get, I'm so lucky, like with this like podcasting, I get to sit across and, and wonderful scholars and hear these lectures. Um, this is awesome. I wish my students thought like that though. Uh, yeah. I'm joking. I, students as well. <laughs> I, I hear like a little bit of almost like, uh, yeah, like clinical versus authentic or public health kind of things in this co-production is a way to do that. I really like that whole thing you were talking about uh, where they wanted to give the health benefits is the forefront thing, but that's all they wanted to do. So they just, they just wanted to tokenize people at the end of the day and say, we heard them. And then we moved on. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, but they did listen, Scott. I, I yeah. Mean, uh, and again, I think this is also the power of co-production. Not only did they listen, but it was a really good win politically when we was coming out, I won't say coming out of COVID because it's still here, but when the government was in turmoil, it was a good news story. And we can look at that politically, but it was a good news story also for disabled uh, people for getting their voice on the agenda. But what came out in all the press and still people invite me and the disabled people as part of this, uh, what came out was the vital nature of their voices influencing this the vital nature, and that came out in all the press, it came out in all the invites to radio programs, where I deferred it to the path, to the people who worked alongside, your voice should be on the radio program, not me, uh, to conferences and so on. That was the big thing, and that's had a shift in government, I would say radical shift, don't get me wrong, but certainly, you know, the Office for Health uh, Involvement and Disparities, that under our physical activity arm, they have the word co-production, on their vocabulary they want more of it they want more of it that would not have happened without these disabled children pushing this agenda that, and that's great that is great that's honestly uh things to yeah strive for that that's incredible i want to get now um if we have time um i want to get to these so as I said at the beginning, um, you are a prolific and a, truly a scholar within just the qualitative research realm is how I view you. And I know many of my colleagues do as well. And you've even written, you co-authored or co-edited the Rutledge Handbook of Qualitative Research and Sport and Exercise with Andrew Sparks. And uh, with that, 
I, you have, and I said this before the, the podcast, but you truly have changed how I view qualitative research. Um, and I might be running into the same things now because the last few things I write a little bit more from that lens. And now I get these saturation questions and um, just a lot of questions. I, I now, you know, why didn't you do member checking and uh, all the things that I'm sure that we're talk about briefly on this. So um, with that, uh, you know, you talk a little bit, and this is in the literature of talking a little bit about the little Q and big Q qualitative research. And I believe that you're a proponent for big Q research. Can you discuss the differences between these kind of paradigms or methodology and maybe some of the major misconceptions you've seen around what is quality qualitative research? Yeah, I think this is a very timely question. And and thank you for permission, uh, positioning me in terms of being an advocate of Big Q. And I want to stress to listeners uh, as well, I'm also an advocate of small Q, when done well, when done well. Uh, it has its place and we need to understand it and work alongside it. And I certainly know working in policy, uh, little Q goes down well in that space. Uh, strangely enough, it goes down well. So there are different ways of thinking of, about this as well. And I also say that because, uh, and I'm you know, I'm not ashamed to, to say this, I think certainly at one stage in my career, largely due to frustration with the field and largely due to with anger of not reading, scholars not reading and just regurgitating what they wrote. I perhaps was an overly, let me put this positively, overly enthusiastic in my commentary uh, regarding uh, different texts and different individuals and I certainly apologise to one or two of those of the years and it cost me a few beers uh, recently in Portugal so those people know who they are uh, but uh, nonetheless, I mean, you know, I'm in different space uh, in my career and learned those lessons uh, on that. But in terms of some of the differences, how I understand them, uh, and, and these are perhaps painted a little bit of a caricature uh, here, but nonetheless, I think they're important. I look at little Q as being very procedurally orientated. So, as you know, you follow A, B, C, D, and then you'll spit out the results. That's absolutely fine. It's very tightly driven qualitative research. Is you know, I'll ask in my interview uh, structure, I'll ask this question, then I'll move on to the next question, then I'll move on, and I'll make sure I ask every question in the same order to every participant uh, in, in our sample that we've uh, uh, selected uh, on there. And the same with the analysis becomes very rigid in terms of we'll have multiple uh, independent people analyze the data. Together, we'll get together uh, and we'll say, what did you find? What did you, I find? And we find some consensus, whether that is 85%, 90%. And there is no consensus about what is consensus. I haven't read the literature, but nonetheless, uh, they'll come up with a consensus and that's that's moving forward. Or you might use uh, member checking where you pass your data and your findings to the participants and you ask the question, do you agree? Uh, nine times out of 10, you're probably going to get a yes if they've even bothered to read the data and if they even understand your interpretations uh, on there. So that's kind of like the little little cue. That's arguably dominant in uh, APA for a long, long time, certainly in the broader space of sport and exercise sciences or kinesiology, uh, as it's called in North America or human sciences or human kinetics in, in different spaces in Europe. That's probably been the dominant way, but I've seen a shift over the years and that shift has been down to 
multiple colleagues. You know, I've got my colleague, Professor Kerry McGannon, has been really influential and other colleagues uh, alongside us, like Professor Andrew Bart Sparks, Ted Buterin, and then younger scholars moving into the space who I've already mentioned, uh, like Javier Monforte. You know, brilliant scholars that are, are challenging and opening up so that people who are adopting a big queue can do the work that they want to do and that's valued. And so what is a big Q? Well, it's not driven by a positivist agenda. It's driven by, for example, some form of interpretivism, whether that's, uh, as an example, social constructionism, or even the form of critical uh, realism that could be uh, embedded in, in that move as well. So you have a sense of social constructionism or a critical realism in informing this. So it's a very different type of paradigm, very different type of assumptions that are underpinning this. Now, saying the word assumptions and throwing in critical realism and uh, social constructionism, people say, well, they've got hugely different ontological assumptions. Well, they do as you progress along the journey. But too many scholars have created fallacies over this and, you know, that's not good. You know, the question, does social constructionists believe there's an independent reality out there? Yes. Uh, I've been criticised for saying, for arguing against that, and no one's read the key footnote in the most cited, one of the most highly cited paper where I say there is an independent reality out there. So it's really bad academic uh, practice there. We've got to ask the questions uh, why. And I think that's the, uh, some debates within the big Q. So I think firstly, there are these two paradigmatic, uh, or at least two, and many other ways. We've got feminism is, is embedded in there. Indigenous scholarship is coming through there. So it's this different way of thinking ontologically and epistemologically uh, there. I think secondly, it's about recognizing that we don't want this procedural format. We can be craft-like, we can be curious, we can ask questions along the way, we can uh, think with the data. And I draw upon a Michel uh, Foucault uh, example here. And I think sometimes procedural methods can lead you towards the conclusions you can find, fine. But I like Foucault's where in looking at through a big Q lens, it allows thought to move. It allows thought to move because you're not constrained by these procedures. And if I can give you an example, how I do analysis often through narrative analysis is not driven by coding. It's about asking questions of the stories, theoretically informed questions, but questions. And questions that might be applicable today, but might not be applicable on the next project. So the shift, and they might not be applicable to you, Scott, they might shift. But nonetheless, the different ways of approaching the data and also thinking about data differently, thinking about data differently as well, uh, thinking about how, for example, a transcript might affect me emotionally. How does that emotion play out in the analysis? And I wrote about that in a paper years ago where I engaged in somebody who uh, lived in a chaos narrative, which essentially means life's never going to get a better as a result of disability. I had no idea what the story's about. If you looked at my notes, I just scribble. It's all a mess. And that that data isn't the traditional data that you put in a in any manuscript, just scribbles. 
can imagine that just sending in a scribble? <laughs> You'd be like rejected. But that, that that's the different ways of data. And then finally, it's about thinking about uh, rigor or quality or validity, however we might talk about it in different in different ways, very much list-like. And that includes critical realism and social constructionism. Just we adopt uh, similar often and different criteria as we progress. So rather than member reflection, rather than member checking, we might offer member reflections. So what are your thoughts about this data? Are you going to challenge us? Are you going to add to it? Are we going to bring some contradictions in there? Do you understand it? So it's a different way of approaching the data. Neither better nor worse than little Q, I want to state, or big Q. I don't want to privilege one above the other. I have a personal preference, uh, but I wouldn't, if I was reviewing a small Q, I would review it on the criteria that they need to follow. Very positivistically driven, very tight, very narrow, member checking, et cetera. Just do that bloody well. Do it very well. So that's how I look at the difference. And I'll leave you with this. One of the beauties, I think, for Big Q, and I've been fortunate to work with so many cool people on this, it just allows your curiosity and imagination, key two keywords, to go in really cool spaces that you would never imagined if I was driven by this really linear, linear thought. Sometimes those spaces are not cool spaces either, because it's not what you want to talk about. But it does drive you into those spaces and it's it's that dialogue. That's the final key word. It's dialogical, dialogical. Yeah, I you know, and just speaking on my own experience from like a scholarship thing uh, or perspective, you know, I definitely started out with little Q, which I'm sure is basically probably where everyone starts or most people probably begin with because it's it's it aligns with the larger whatever research paradigms that occur and, and such. And, um, and I'm slowly, but surely, I think kind of recognizing that. And, and as you said, like not ready, like I wasn't ready uh, for the, to, to kind of take those things on. And I've really had to ask myself, who am I? And I think there was a while where I felt like I could kind of go in between those two things and, 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 you know, but and at some some point, as a young scholar, I'm kind of playing with playing with the tools and I'm learning the tools uh, and such. But I really, you know, in the last few years, kind of identified more of my how I view the world and how I make sense of the world, and it really does fall. And then the research tools that would help me make sense of the world and interpret it. And it and I'm really just this maybe last year really have begun to say this is my preferred way to understand the data in the world. Um, and it's probably been a five year road of me really just even identifying my preference and identifying and, and having any any um, any confidence really in, in the skills of it. I, you know, the big Q to me has coming out of a PhD program, though like I was not taught a formal, you know, big Q class. And most of my colleagues, even the ones that are doing it, don't have that. I have a lot of, you know, little Q lends itself really well to many traditional PhD kind of things. So the big Q route, at least in, from my experience, has been mentors and, and literature and not the formal classes. Um, you know, those are just yeah. some thoughts, really. 
Yeah, but uh, Scott, I think first you you highlight uh, probably a worldwide problem is that where you know most universities teach through a, a little Q lens, and you might get a tokenistic class on interviewing and say thematic analysis, and then you move on to statistics. Uh, so we're pedagogically we're not doing well. We're not doing well, and why? Because people need qualitative research skills not only for employment because it's absolutely necessity out there in the in the world outside of academia but also in terms of what i've also said in terms of making a difference in policy and practice definitely policymakers want uh, the numbers the statistics as the headline then they want the qualitative data without that qualitative data they can't change hearts they can't change minds that is fundamental to that and the big q lends itself really but i think the second thing i learned from what you've said uh, there as well it's and i'm really respectful of this and lots of different colleagues around the world who are who are able to say you know what i'm going to read something different and it's going to trouble me and i'm i'm not going to get it and it's going to take me on a journey where that journey might end and how long it'll take i don't know and in a world where and particularly academia where we're just publishing, 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 publishing of quantity over quality. I think this is a, an important lesson for us for us all uh, to be able to metaphorically take a step back and to, to ask those questions and to really do that hard reading and to really think, where is this taking me? And to be secure enough as a scholar to appreciate that rather than just saying, this is how we've done it. So we'll continue doing it and doing more of the same geez, that's dull. The people are dull. The work is dull. I mean, it's not taken us very far, has it? Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm really respectful of these, of this colleagues. Like you, I was little Q for a long time. Uh, I feel as though I'm just talking about Star Trek now for some reason. Uh, uh, next generation there, I don't know why. Uh, any sci-fi fans, was there a Q in, in Star Wars? <laughs> Star Trek? I don't know. Uh, lost on that one. Uh, but you know, nonetheless, I think it's an important lesson for for people to 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 learn. It's something that I've learned, and I'll, I'll change as I progress as well. Uh, and who know what big Q will lead? Maybe a bigger Q or a, a different pump Q. I don't know, but who who knows where where we'll go on this interesting, cool journey? Well, and and to kind of wrap up our conversation, the last question is: you know, we've talked a lot. We've talked about the language. Um, and how we conceptualize disability through that language. We talked about co-production, creating best practices through working with people with disabilities and getting their voices, sorry, disabled people. And then also uh, we've talked this really giant big idea that I had to ask you as being in my, my mind, a forefront leader in this area about big Q research. Um, you know, where do you see us going um, in these different, in any of those directions and in, relating it back some way to APA? Like, where do you see the next frontiers? Yeah, I think APA is just a little further behind than other spaces uh, for different for different reasons. Uh, but APA do things better than other spaces uh, as well. But where, where do we go? And I think, firstly, APA scholars have to take uh, intellectual ownership and intellectual direction of where the big Q and little Q can go. I think we've got to have a strong, no, stronger is perhaps the wrong word, but more intellectually curious, methodological voice in our journals, in our teaching, in our spaces. I think that is, is a must, rather than jumping into exercise psychology or sociology of sport. I think we have a lot to offer in this space, a lot to offer 
for example, you know, we've, you could talk about generalizability, which has been talked about by many scholars uh, over the years, but what might that look like in a Napier space where it's a little bit more complicated generalizability when you do have different disability impairment groups, for example, how does that work? So I think we're in a really unique uh, position where we can advance the space on our own terms. So I think one of my calls is the world of qualitative research is not according to Brett Smith. It's according to lots of multiple people, including young scholars on here. So I'd really impress upon us all to be getting our work in the APA journals, Adapted Physical Activity Quarterly for one, and really putting in really strong methodological approaches that do several things. One, challenge the orthodoxy. I think that's absolutely fundamental because there's still, when I'm reviewing for these journals, I still see the same old arguments. That's, of course, part of the problem of scholars not reading, but we need time and so on. So I think that's the first challenge. I think bringing our own ideas and unique ideas that APA lends us and provides us with, I think we've got something to offer the broader field as well. Other people can come into our space and learn from that. I'm really excited about where that uh, agenda uh, might go with. And I think as as well, as part of, uh, well, I'm just trying to add, bring my thoughts together. As part of this learning, we do something, I think, relatively unique and relatively special historically, and that is uh, about people's voices. How could you know disabled people, people with uh, disabilities, their own academic voices, start influencing this more methodologically? Methodologically, and I'll give you one example. We're just writing a paper right now, while my colleague uh, Jake and uh, Javier are leading on this, about well cafes and knowledge cafes. We've done this, what's called the method in the literature. When disabled people start challenging us, it turned out to be not a method. It turned out to be a non-method. And uh, I won't go into those details here, but that was a fundamental shift in how we practiced and understood this way of thinking. Now, if anybody's quote me, read the paper that will come out. Don't steal that idea. Since <laughs> <This is> my <laughs> colleague has uh, led on that. But I think my key point is that if the voices of disabled people provided us with a different understandings of methods and methodology. Uh, and I'm very grateful uh, for that. And I think that provides us with a, you know, a unique voice rather than just sampling students, you know, as traditional psychology people do and so on. So that that's where I that's that's where I think we we can go participatory work we can share exemplar practices uh, as an example uh, there and better mixed methods work as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, and just to to hit on some of those things, you know, I, I'm privileged a lot in in this field for seven years, and I've had really great scholars, and I get to read your work and. And I do that in preparation for these. And in a way, it's kind of really helped me in, in a lot of ways. And, you know, I agree. Um, just re getting out there and reading is so important. I remember there's one a few years ago now in APA, APAC that was um, unintentional harm um, and such. And, and it was about APA professionals trying to uh, they interview them about how they navigate that. And it just really... I mean, I read that maybe two years ago now, and I, I think about it all the time about how do we navigate unintentional harm from not doing best practices. And, and in a way, related to that paper, when you're saying that we're just, we're not moving forward, there is an unintentional harm there as well, is that we could be. 
um, and we, we are harming from not getting the reaping the benefits of moving forward and engaging and challenging ourselves. So, Dr. Smith, um, I really, really appreciate you being on the podcast. I appreciate you giving us your time. Um, it has been a pleasure and an honor to have you on here. And thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks for anybody that stayed with me and Scott on this journey. And if you have, get in touch and equally do brilliant work, be passionate. And we've got a great space here and we've really advanced it through lots of different people uh, in this on this beautiful planet. So thanks everybody. Have a good day. Thank you.